Today we start a new series called The Elephant in the Room. Um, The Elephant in the Room is a metaphor that describes a problem, risk, or condition that no one wants to discuss or challenge. You see, if your uncle was arrested and went to prison, but no one wants to talk about it, that's the elephant in the room, right? Your family thinks that if they don't talk about it, that everything would be better. If you've been dating someone for eight years and you still haven't proposed, marriage is probably a sore subject. You both know it's a big issue, but it's the elephant in the room. You see, the elephant in the room is an unpopular subject that everyone would rather avoid. Often it's to avoid controversy and awkward feelings. Other times it's to preserve relationships, even though that relationship is not built on candid truth. The motives for addressing the subject may be good, but everyone wonders if you should address it. Over the course of the next six weeks of this series, we're going to be discussing topics that are often avoided within the church. Here's the topics that we're going to be talking about for the next six weeks. Today, we are starting with the topic of sex. We're going to be talking about sexuality, specifically um, addressing homosexuality and the LGBT agenda. We're going to be talking about porn and lust and temptations. We're going to be talking about marriage and divorce. We're going to be talking about food problems. And we're going to be talking about money. You see, these, these subjects are avoided in church among Christians for several reasons. Number one reason that they're avoided by the church is the church doesn't want to make people mad, right? Nobody likes anyone that's, you don't want people to be mad at you. Why? Because when people get mad, they cause problems. They might even leave the church. Oftentimes it's easier to avoid an issue that leads to anger. Number two is controversial topics lead to arguments and arguments distract the leader in the church from the main purpose of the church. People who like to argue, and believe it or not, there are a lot of them, seize on controversy. Oftentimes, they create controversy without any help from outside sources. The number three reason is that there aren't always clear, thus saith the Lord, Bible issues. Right? Wouldn't it be awesome if every topic and every issue in our world today was directly addressed in the Bible? Right? But prescription drug abuse isn't in the Bible because there was no such thing as prescription drugs back then. There is no verse that says it's wrong for a Christian to view internet pornography because the internet had not been created yet. But just because something is not specifically mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that there aren't biblical principles and godly wisdom that applies. People often disagree on the application of those principles, though. The fourth reason it's avoided is because many people grew up in a, in a harsh, legalistic church. Right? As a result, they are reluctant to raise high standards. There was a time that it seemed that anything was fun was considered sin. And some of those rules were absolutely ridiculous. Right? So what happens in a classic overreaction, we've swung the pendulum the other way. And because we don't want to be labeled as legalistic, we've abandoned holiness and won't even talk about it. The fifth reason is talking about controversy invites opposition. No one enjoys being picketed. No one likes having threats made to them or their family. 
It's not fun to be slammed on social media. It happens. You see, it's easier to avoid the really difficult stuff and not be attacked. The sixth reason we avoid is because your loved ones are involved in that behavior. And often we allow that to shift our theology because we can't stand the thought of our friends or our family members missing heaven. We simply adjust our beliefs to accommodate their behavior. I know that sounds foolish, but it happens all the time. Closely related to that, you don't want it talked about in the church because you're involved in that behavior. And the seventh reason is because society has redefined sin. The more sin becomes accepted, the less people want to identify it as sin, regardless of what the Bible says. But we cannot avoid the challenging subjects, even if they're unpopular, and invite opposition. We've got to talk about this because our world is ever-changing. You need to know how to apply biblical principles when a subject is not specifically addressed. And when the situation is specifically addressed, you need to know what the Bible says. So over the course of this series, you may disagree with what's said. In fact, it's very likely that everyone in here at some point will disagree with something. So before I get started this morning, I wanted to give you some instructions. Here is what I want you to do when you disagree. First, listen to the entire message instead of just being angry at one line. Listen, we're not going to take one line out of context. So if you get mad over something, go back online and listen to the podcast and listen to the entire message. Secondly, if we're going to disagree, base your disagreement on the Bible, not what you think God must be like or your background or what tradition you grew up with. Third, in your disagreement, avoid anger, blame, and name-calling. When you do that, you reveal that you do not have a good argument or that you are spiritually immature. Number four, have rational, reasoned conversation with other believers and be open to the fact that even though we may disagree on some areas, we're all a part of God's family. And be open to the possibility that you may need to change some behavior or some ways of thinking. And then finally, number five, and this is very important, no death threats, right? In today's world, that'll be taken as a terroristic threat, and we will report you to the police, right? Man, that's a great introduction, right? Today, we're going to talk about sex, And the title of the message today is How to Be Successful. It's maybe not something that you've talked a a lot about, especially in the church. Andy Stanley said, Sex and money are the things that we think about the most and we talk about the least in church. Historically, most churches have used one of two strategies when it comes to teaching people about sex. The first strategy is, We don't say the S word, right? We don't talk about sex. Some churches don't talk about sex probably because they haven't had some 
they haven't had any for so long that it would be like a historical lesson. Or secondly, the strategy, maybe you grew up in a church that was like this. Sex is treated as a shameful thing. Hey kids, sex is dirty and gross. Save it for the one you love. Right? If we teach our kids that sex is dirty and gross, do you think that's going to be healthy when they step into the marriage relationship when sex is encouraged and they still think it's dirty and gross? You see, sex is something that most people are pretty interested in. As a man, there comes a point where one day all you care about is your bicycle and G.I. Joes. You couldn't care less about girls. And then something switches. And that girl walks by, and now she's become the most fascinating thing you've ever seen. We say things like, I don't care about G.I. Joes anymore. I want one of those. See, there are all kinds of emotions and opinions when it comes to the topic of sex. There are statistically many people in this room that have been sexually abused. We understand that. For many people in this room, your first exposure to to sexuality was probably pornography. And there are people here that had sexual experiences very young, and you carry that with you to this day. This brings up one of the greatest lies about sex that people say, do what feels good, live for the moment. But when it comes to sex, and an act that might have only occurred for a few moments can leave a memory with you for the rest of your life. So here's what we're going to be talking about today. God created sex. Amen? You say, I don't have a reason to worship God, I just gave you one. Right? Sex was God's idea. Sex is a gift from God. But here's the thing you've got to understand that every gift from God can be abused if you don't use it the way that God intended. Every time God gives us a good thing, He gives us boundaries. When He created Adam and Eve, He gave them boundaries. Don't eat of this one tree. It was when they went outside the boundaries of the guidelines that God had instituted that they brought suffering into the world. And some people may think, ah, there you go. God just wants to restrict my freedom. Actually, the opposite is true. Boundaries create freedom, safety, and security. When you're trying to keep your kids alive, you give them boundaries because you love them. You let them play in the yard, but don't go into the street. You can have a BB gun, but don't shoot your brother with it. God created sex, and he drew a boundary around it, a circle around it, and it said, stay in the boundary lines, stay in the circle of successful sex. You see, inside the circle, sex is a gift that's to be enjoyed. But outside of that circle, sex is a burden. I hope that today you'll gain an understanding about God's plan for sex and take away some keys to having a successful sex life. Listen, today's going to be a little bit different than normal. I'm not going to preach a lot. I didn't say I'm not going to speak for a long time. But today's going to be more like a Bible study. We're going to look at multiple scriptures and talk about them. 
first one is in Genesis 2. God formed man and then breathed life into him. He put man in the garden, and and then the Lord said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. You see, God saw that when it was just Adam, creation was incomplete. If the world was full of just men, we'd run around killing each other, eating nothing but hot pockets, and wearing the same pair of underwear for a week at a time. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall in a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought him to the man. I love what he says next. At last, the man exclaimed. You see, he actually starts their relationship with poetry before there is sex. There is romance. What did he say? This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. See, God is like, you're excited because she looks good. Just wait, son. It's about to get a lot better. Then God performs the first marriage. See, before there is sex, there is marriage. The boundaries that God created sex to be within is within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. See, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. You see, all the single ladies in here, this is God's plan for you, that you marry a man who will provide for you and lead you. Not just a guy who who has to get kicked out of the house when he's 32 that just wants to sit around and play Xbox and eat Hot Pockets all day. You see that in marriage, a man separates from his parents. Mom is no longer his number one woman anymore. We see that God performs the first marriage ceremony and he said, you two are now joined together in marriage. You see, this marriage is intended to be a lifelong committed relationship between a man and a woman. What's next? Probably my favorite verse in all of Scripture, Genesis 2.25. Now the man and the wife were naked, but they felt no shame. Right? And everybody said, Amen. We see that within the bounds of marriage between a man and the wife, sex brings absolutely no shame. It's not dirty. It's not gross. It's awesome. In fact, one step further, you're actually obeying God and honoring Him when you do have sex within marriage. Can I just tell you, obedience never sounded so good, right? Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. God commanded husbands and wives to be fruitful. And so God says, If you're married, just do it. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love. To his wife. You see, that's my second favorite verse. And some of the guys are going to go home and be like, hey babe, can you help me remember that scripture that pastor was talking about? Adam did something with his wife. What was it again? So, so here's what you need to know about that Hebrew phrase, made love. It's the Hebrew word used is yada. It's to know, to have a deeper understanding of. You see, sex is a deeply emotional and spiritual thing. 
There is a physical, mental, and emotional connection that takes place. It's why it says that the two shall become one. Listen, there is no such thing as casual sex because the act is so intimate. In marriage, sex is not the ultimate thing. Rather, intimacy is the goal. Listen, I understand that some people can't have sex because of medical reasons, but even without physical sex, married couples can and should have intimacy. Sex is just a way to express and create intimacy. Sex without intimacy is hollow. See, I believe that sex is is just a part of the intimacy cycle. Intimacy leads to more sex, and sex leads to more intimacy. Typically, women want to feel intimacy before having sex, and men want to give intimacy more after sex. Listen, if if you're wishing your marriage had more sex in it, try figuring out how to bring more intimacy into your marriage. Men, don't be that guy that's too lazy to pursue your wife. He's a guy that doesn't do things that cause intimacy. He doesn't pursue her heart. He doesn't serve her. And then he complains about how she isn't in the mood as often as he'd like. Guys, if you want to get her in the mood, you've got to be a romantic dude. Right? You remember when you were dating, you went out of your way to win her heart. Men, married men, you have got to swoon your wife. You have got to do something to make her heart go pitter-patter. Ladies, if you want to get your husband in a mood, you've got to... Never mind, he's already in the mood. Um, Whose job is it to take the first step in marriage in this cycle of intimacy and sex? You see, this is a part of a bigger idea in marriage. Whose job is it to serve first? It's your job. Whose? His or hers? Yes. Marriage isn't about getting. Marriage is about giving. I'm going to say that again. Marriage is not about getting. Marriage is about giving. Ephesians 5 tells us to submit to one another. Not he gives 50% and she gives 50%. You both have to give 100%. Did you know that there is a whole book in the Bible that talks about intimacy and sex? And it's better and racier than any romance novel you've ever thought about reading. Song of Solomon is a book of romance between a young man and his new wife, and it's all about sex. Listen, some very religious people will say it's not about sex. It's an allegory between Christ and the church, or it's about God and Israel. Um, no. Why? That would be weird. It's actually a hot and steamy book about sex and marriage. If you think the Bible is boring, it's about to get interesting. Song of Solomon 2.7 says, Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until its time is right. Single people, this is your verse. We are all created as sexual beings, but God intended that our sexuality awaken in marriage. 
once you wake that part of you up, it's very difficult to keep it in check. That's why you must be careful about where you draw the line in your dating relationships because one thing always leads to another unless you put up a giant steel roadblock. You see, that means avoiding compromising situations. It means commitment to sexual purity. It means having accountability in your life. In marriage, sex is a gift, but outside of marriage, sex is a burden. In Song of Solomon 1-2, it's a husband and wife talking inside the circle, inside the boundaries that God has established for sex in the marriage. And the young woman says, Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. One of the keys of success is good communication. She just said, here is what I want you to do. This is what I need. This is what I like. Kiss me a lot. Right? Kissing is a very intimate sexual stimulation. This is why single people who are dating need to be careful about even kissing. They say, oh, we just kiss, right? Well, be careful how you kiss. Scientifically, during a passionate kiss, our blood vessels dilate, more oxygen is routed to the brain, our breathing quickens, our cheeks flush, our our pupils dilate, feel-good chemicals called endorphins, oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine in your body spike. You see, we are hardwired by God to find kissing incredibly pleasurable and addictive. Dr. Joy Davidson, a psychologist and clinical sexologist who's not even a Christian, said kissing is nature's way of opening the door to sexual experience. I've heard married couples say we don't really kiss a lot anymore. He or she really doesn't like kissing. The problem is that kissing is an important part to intimacy. So go brush your teeth or get some mints and lay one on your spouse. Matter of fact, we've got some mints out on the table if you need some. Listen, if you need more reason to kiss, men who kiss their wives before leaving for work live an average of five years longer and earn 20 to 30% more income. Verse 3 says, how fragrant your cologne. You know what she says? You smell good. I love the way you smell one of the most shocking things um, that, that, that I learned when Tina and I got married is that all of a sudden I realized that I had a smell. Now, look, my wife does this occasional weird thing where she, like, leans in close and sniffs me, right? It's, it's weird. And truthfully, I kind of like it, though. Um, I don't think that most guys even know that they've got a smell until they get married, Right? As men and as boys, as guys, you go through that stinky boy phase, right? Where everyone can smell you coming from a mile away. And then maybe you become a teenager and you want girls to like you, and so you drench yourself in Axe body stray, and once again, everybody can smell you coming from a mile away. But you see, there's something powerful and intimate about smell. Listen, one of the most romantic things that a guy can do for his wife is to take a shower. Especially if you come home from a long day of work. Or if you come in from mowing the grass and you've been stinking. Listen, you need to get your stinky, smelly butt in the shower. She's going to appreciate it. Then she goes on to say, your name 
is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. You see, when she's talking about his name, she's saying, you have a great reputation. Not just a reputation, but you've got great character. And I put this on the screen. Reputation is who other people think you are. Character is who you really are. Reputation is who others think you are. That's what they say about you. But has anybody ever had somebody say something that wasn't true about them? Right? Everybody has. So what really matters? It's the character. It's about who you really are. You see, this young man had godly character. Listen, that's the kind of man that all parents want for their daughter. If you're a single guy and you want to be Mr. Right someday, you need to focus on becoming a man of God right now. Men, one of the sexiest things in the world to women is godly character. Godly character smells amazing, and rotten character stinks. Ladies, don't think that you're going to marry some guy who has rotten character and save him. Listen, it took Jesus to save you, and it'll take Jesus to save him. This is the number one thing that single ladies should be looking for in a man. Listen, if you're a young boy coming to church hoping to find a wife, and and let's be honest, that's why half of the young men come to church, spend less energy worrying about your hair or your car or your muscles and more energy about passionately serving the Lord. And you know what will happen? The girls will notice you. Listen, physical attraction is important. And it's good to be attracted to your spouse. But physical beauty fades. For both men and women, bellies expand and biceps shrink. Butts get bigger and things start to sag. But godly character is lasting and it's incredibly sexy. Verse 4, she says, take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into the bedroom. Hello, this is a wife telling her husband, I want you. Let's hurry home to the bedroom. Listen, wives, if you talk to your husband that way, he will wreck his car driving home to to come home for date night. Right? What you see here is important. The wife is initiating sex, and the husband is initiating sex. It's not one person always chasing the other person. She says, I want you. But he leads her to the bedroom. The world says that sex is something that you try and get. And unfortunately, some couples use sex as a bartering tool. If you take care of these chores, then I'll take care of you. If you clean my clothes, then we'll do that thing you want to do. Listen, sex should not ever be used as a bartering tool. Sex should be freely given in marriage. Even if you'd say, I'm not in the mood... Listen, you can serve your spouse by giving them the gift of sex. And it's mutually beneficial. A husband and wife should love and serve one another. Listen, we understand that and we get that with other things, don't we? You're not always in the mood to make dinner or do yard work or or put the kids to bed, but you serve one another because that's what you do in a marriage. Listen, if you only have sex when you're both in the mood, you're not going to have enough sex. One of you is always going to be busy. One of you is stressed out, and one of you is distracted. How many of your bosses have an open-door policy, right? If, if you want to talk, I'm here. 
I recommend that in marriage, in your marriage, you adapt an open-door policy. Why? Because the door is always open. When the door is open and you can talk about things, then you'll both always be fulfilled. Truth is, you'll never regret that kind of policy. Verse 9, now it's the young man talking to his wife. He says, you are exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. Did anybody grow up on a farm? Um, What happens if you put a female horse amongst a bunch of stallions? By the way, stallions are male horses, in case you didn't grow up on a farm. Right? What happens if you put a female horse out there with a bunch of male horses? You know what happens to the stallions? They start going crazy. He's saying, girl, you are fine. I am so turned on by you. Listen, husbands, you need to communicate attraction to your wives. Your wife needs to hear audible words or read written words that express your attraction to her. Women spend most of their lives struggling with insecurity about their physical appearance. By the time a woman is 18, she has heard 250,000 times, you're not beautiful, you're not pretty, but if you had this product, you would be. Husbands need to tell their wives with words, I'm into you. You light my fire. He says in verse 10, How lovely are your cheeks. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. Now we read that and we go, that's kind of weird, right? Like we're like, hey babe, I really like your cheeks. I like that hot cheekbone you got going on. Like that's kind of weird. But you know what he was doing? He was noticing the details. He was noticing the details. He says, girl, your accessories are on point. That necklace really compliments you. Now, single guys, don't be in the foyer after church trying to use these pickup lines. Oh, man, those earrings set your cheeks on fire, right? No, don't don't do that. Some guys are just like, well, I don't notice those kinds of details. Right? It's funny that you know all kinds of details about how many touchdowns your quarterback threw last season. You'll notice details about the annual return on your portfolio. You'll notice the details like how you need a new driver because the angle of the loft is one degree higher than the one you've got. We notice details about the things we care about. Noticing details about your spouse says, you're important to me. If we notice the details about the things we care about, do you care about your wife? Do you care about your husband? He says in verse 11, we will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. He's saying, I value you. You're more important to me than money. You're worth my time. I want to do nice things for you. I want to give to you and take care of you. Listen, that's why if you're going to date a guy and marry a guy, he needs to have a job. Listen, you don't need to marry some bum that ain't got no job. Fire that dude. He ain't never been fired before because he ain't never had a job. He ain't worth your time. If he ain't going to work and provide for you, you don't need him. Now, now you might be married to a woman who makes more money than you. Listen, that's fine. 
But what Solomon is saying, woman, you're more valuable to me than stuff. You come before everything else. Men, don't spend 50 bucks golfing or $100 on ammo for the shooting, shooting range with your buddies and then take your wife out to the dollar value menu on date night because you can't afford to go to nice places. All women, every woman in here wants to feel valued. The next phrase is for you ladies. This next verse. You carry so much power in the words that you speak to your husband. She says to him in verse 16, You are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. Oh, come on. My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They are set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices given off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold set with beryl. His body is like bright ivory growing with lapis lazuli, whatever that is. It sounds incredible. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. You see, this was a woman who knew how to speak to her husband. We've talked several times about the power of words and and how we should speak life. Listen, wives, the most important thing to a man is that you respect him. The most important thing to a man is that you respect him. Wives, you've got extra powerful words. Listen, you've got the ability to empower or crush your husband. Pretty much if anyone insults me, I don't care. Say what you want. But if my wife were to insult me, I'd be crushed. Right? If, if, if someone compliments me, I'm like, oh, that's nice, whatever. But man, if my wife compliments me, I feel like Superman. You see, one of the ways you can honor and respect your husband is to build him up with words of affirmation. Are you only nagging your husband? Are you only telling him what he's doing wrong? Why don't you try telling him how good he looks and how big his muscles are, even if they're really small? Encourage him in his work as a husband and even in the bedroom. Speak life into him with your words. In chapter 2, verse 3, she says, Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover amongst other young men. I sit in his delight shade and taste his delicious fruit. Now, does, does that mean what I think it does? I don't know, and it could just be a metaphor, but it could be an allusion to something else. I, I'm not going to talk about that, but it brings up a common question. What is okay in the bedroom? What's inside the boundaries of boundary lines of a healthy sexual relationship? Is it okay to fill in the blank? Listen, if you are married, a husband and a wife, here's how you answer that. Number one, is it expressly forbidden in the Bible? Assuming that we're talking about the marriage relationship between one husband and one wife, does the the Bible doesn't say anything to forbid specific sexual acts between a husband and wife except rape. That is always wrong. It's never right to force yourself or to force someone else to have sex against their will under any circumstances. 
Number two, is it unhealthy or harmful? Listen, there are some acts of sexuality that cause pain or harm to the other person. And listen, these are usually only in someone's mind because of an exposure to pornography. We're going to spend an entire week talking about lust and porn, but I'll say this. Pornography objectifies women and men, and it turns them into objects of self-gratification instead of human beings created in the image of God. This usually leads to abuse, rape culture, and inflicting harm. There is no place for that in a godly marriage. Number three, is it kind? This is the most important question. Will you pressure your spouse to do something if he or she finds it unpleasant? See, the key word there is pressure. If you pressure your spouse to do something that they don't want to do, you're unkind. And it's a sin to be unkind. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the context there is sex. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means that both the husband and the wife have the right to say to one another, I would like to blank. And both of them have the right to say, I would rather not blank. And in the good marriage, a biblical loving marriage, both of them will seek to outdo the other in showing kindness. I love this next verse in Song of Solomon 2.4. She says, He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much He loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. Look, this is the husband and wife in marriage that are having so much sex that she's saying, look, I'm going to need some protein and some Gatorade. I'm going to need to carbo load. You are wearing me out. So it begs the question, how much sex should we have? And can I tell you the, the simple answer to that is as much sex as you both need. In general, more is better. Didn't get any amens on that? Listen, I think a lot of marriages would instantly improve if they simply had more sex. Why? Sex in marriage relieves stress. It provides comfort in times of sadness. It creates intimacy. It's only good. Listen, usually if Tina and I get, begin to get in dumb arguments over stupid stuff that doesn't matter, we can usually trace it back to the fact that we haven't had sex in a while. And so you know what the solution is? We have sex. When I know I'm getting ready to leave town for a long time, because I know I want and need sex for my wife, you know what we do? We have sex. When I get back from being gone, you know what we do? We have sex. Look, if, if you come back after I've been gone for a weekend or two or like two weeks, don't come over to the house late at night because you're going to interrupt stuff and you're going to be embarrassed. And we don't care because that's our house. And we do the thing that married people do, right? Listen, in fact, I'm going to issue you a challenge. And it's going to be the best challenge that a pastor's ever given you. You ready for it? I'm calling it the seven-day sex challenge. Now listen, it's only for married couples. If you're not married, this challenge does not apply to you. But if you are married... Here's the challenge. Have sex 
at least once every day this week with your spouse and see what it does to your relationship and your level of intimacy. Now, look, some of you are sitting in here with your parents, and you're like, this is gross, Pastor. Why are you doing that? And, like, you're turning red. Look, guess what? You got here. I'm going to break it to you. You got here because they had sex. And can I tell you, they didn't just have sex when they created you. So now that that's out in the open, right? Um, Listen, some guy in here is saying, like, man, I like this church. Wait till I tell my buddies about what the pastor said today. (laughs) Listen, she says in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, My lover said to me, Rise up, my darling, come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past and the rains are over and gone. She says, Take me away. Take me on vacation. Listen, husbands and wives need time alone together. Listen, you've got to schedule weekly and daily time together. You should try to take vacations together without your kids. Listen, I know you love your kids, but you need to go on vacations without them. You need to schedule alone time without your kids. The best piece of advice that we ever got when we got married was from Pastor Borden, the pastor that I was serving with right before we got married. And he said this. He goes, Jason, have a weekly date night. Actually, he said a monthly date night. And then he challenges us, he goes, if you can do a monthly date night, then you can probably do a weekly date night. And can I tell you, that's been the best advice that we've ever been given. Listen, you need to go on dates with your spouse where you're just focused on the other person. It doesn't have to cost a lot. Guess what? Men, women, be creative. You ain't got to take her to a fancy dinner and go to a movie every time. Do something and be creative. Listen, this isn't the time to stare at your screen on your phone. It's not the time to follow up on Facebook with what everybody else is doing. What are you thinking about? Right? You need to be asking your spouse, what's on your heart? What are you thinking about? What can I do to love you better? This time creates intimacy. She says in Song of Solomon 3, 1, One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all the streets and the squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but did not find him. The watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds, and I asked, Have you seen the one I love? Then scarcely had I left them when I found my love. I caught and held him tightly. What happens here? She wakes up and her husband is gone and she basically panics. She's searching him out. Listen, husbands, your wife has a deep need for security. Matter of fact, it's your wife's number one need is to feel secure. When you mismanage your finances because you've got to buy new toys and money is always tight, that doesn't make her feel secure. Husbands, if you're never around because you're working all the time or you've got hobbies and activities going on every night in the week, it doesn't create a sense of security for your wife. And when she doesn't feel secure, she's not going to feel intimacy. And so she's not going to want to have sex. Husbands, one of the easiest ways to guarantee success is by being present. Listen, reaffirm your commitment to your marriage and your spouse frequently. Yesterday, we got to go to a wedding of of some of our former students. And I love the vows. You want to know why I love the vows? Not only because that's what they exchanged, but it's a moment in that moment for me to reflect on the very same vows that I made to my spouse. And every time we go to a wedding, I fall 
in love with her all over again. Listen, reaffirm that commitment to your wife frequently, to your spouse. I will always love you. I will only love you. I would marry you all over again. I can't wait to get home to you. Listen, just be present. 7-1, he says, How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly mating. Listen, once again, he's noticing the details. He notices the pedicure. He goes on, he says, Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of skilled craftsmen. Your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Your thigh... Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Listen, wheat and lilies, that's an interesting combo of plants. You see, wheat is food for nourishment, and lilies are pretty to look at and to enjoy. Verse 3 says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of gazelles. So what is he saying? Is that most women are like furry little woodland creatures? No, that's not what he's saying here. He said, your neck is beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like sparkling pools in Hespon by the gate of Bath-Rabbim. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. What's he saying? You are my standard for beauty. I'm into your type. For me, Tina Ellis is my standard of beauty. Listen, a lot of people use this language. Well, she's not my type. He's not my type. In reality, you should have only one type, and it's your husband or your wife. What we, speak, what we see, especially with porn everywhere, that some guys are looking at women like they're looking at a menu at a steakhouse. I like this, but not that. I like this, and I'll have some of that. Really what you've said, really that when you've said, I do, you now have one type. Whatever your wife looks like is your type. If she's slender, you like slender. If she's put on some weight, you're into curves now. If all of her teeth have fallen out, now you're into dentures. Listen, I'm not saying that you can't objectively look at someone and notice that they're attractive or beautiful. Listen, that's normal, but that's as far as it should go. You can't allow yourself to go beyond that and say, I want that. It's when this line is crossed is when people say, well, I'm not attracted to my spouse any longer. Guess what? When you do this, it's going to wreck your sex life. Listen, that's why lust and porn are so dangerous. You've got to let your spouse know that you are my type. I like your scrawny arms. I like your curves. I like your belly. I like your tooth. Whatever you've got, that's what I like. Chapter 7, 5 says, Your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. Oh, and how beautiful you are! How pleasing my love! How full of delights! You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. And I said, I will climb that palm tree and take hold of that fruit. Whoa! Right? That, that's aggressive. But it's between husband and wife. It's okay for sex and marriage to be hot and steamy. But you see, this isn't the way that society portrays sex and marriage, is it? You see, every type of sex outside the boundaries of marriage is hot. Whether it's unmarried people, unmarried couples hooking up or people having affairs. But when culture talks about married sex, it's like, ew, I don't want to talk about that. That's gross. 
Listen, in reality, research proves that married people have more sex and more satisfying sex because they're enjoying sex the way that God intended it. But listen, when you go outside the boundaries that God has established, sex is hurtful and damaging. It is. Maybe for some in this room, someone else pulled you outside of that circle. They pulled you outside of that circle against your own will. Listen, you need to know it's not your fault. You need to know that you don't have to carry the guilt and the shame of that. More importantly this morning, I believe God wants you to know you're not damaged goods. Listen, that man, that woman, use you for their own sexual gratification and in some sick and twisted and perverted way. And listen, you need to hear that that's never okay. But you don't have to carry that weight and that guilt any longer. You see, the amazing thing about knowing Christ is not just that He gets us in heaven, but then when we've messed up, when we've done things we shouldn't have, when we've crossed boundaries that we shouldn't have, Jesus is always there to forgive us if we will simply allow Him to do so. Bow your heads with me. Today, there are people in here that would say, I've gone outside of that circle. I've not done it the way that God said it should be done. I've crossed, I've crossed those boundaries. Maybe you've sinned sexually. Listen, God wants you to know that He still loves you and He will still forgive you if you ask Him to. He doesn't think you're dirty or gross. He just wants you to start doing it or stop doing it and wait for it being done the way that he prescribed within the bounds of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And maybe you'd say that. Maybe you you feel the guilt of your sexual sin. And I just want you to know that God will forgive you. You don't have to carry that guilt any longer. So if that's you, I want to pray for you today. And I'm not going to make you raise your hand or embarrass you. But I just want to pray that you would feel God's love. And you would feel his forgiveness. Can we do that today? God, we thank you that you created sex to be healthy within the bounds of marriage. God, you created it to be fun and and to be enjoyable. But God, we also know that anything that is done outside of the boundaries that you've set, God, becomes a burden. God, and for many in this room, they're carrying a burden that they picked up maybe a week ago, maybe a month ago, maybe years ago. God, and they're still carrying the guilt and shame that comes from them not doing it the way that you've said. 
So God, today on their behalf, with them asking as well, God, we ask your forgiveness. God, for every sexual sin that we've allowed to creep into our life that we have willingly and knowingly committed. God, and we ask your forgiveness. God, we repent from it. God, that means that we turn completely away from that sin and we pursue you. God, this morning, may they feel your love and your forgiveness. God, today I also pray for the married couples in this church. God, that maybe you're on the brink of divorce. God, that maybe you're having severe issues. God, that truthfully maybe you haven't had sex for months or years. God, we ask this week that you will help them have that intimacy in their life. God, that as they're intimate with their spouse, God, even beyond sex and all the other problems begin to work themselves out. Because there's a trust, there's an exposure, there's a vulnerability that comes. God, I pray that the married couples of MFA, God, have the healthiest sex of anybody in town. God, because we know that when the intimacy is right, God, that they've got the healthiest marriages in town. God, that then creates healthy families in town. God, that is a light into a dark world that needs to see healthy families and healthy marriages. God, help us to seek out our spouse. God, even when we don't feel like it, God, may we begin to use our words to build up our spouse. God, not to tear down. God, but to honor them and to honor you. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name.